Well, if your budget's a little short this Christmas, you can at least give away a smile. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, it is Christmas time. It's a time when we kind of evaluate what our own lives are doing, what we can do to help others. Time to give. Some recent disasters in the country have certainly prompted our desire to give. We're going to be talking about that. Got some questions for you. Hey, here's our quotation for today. We're going to start with this, and then I want to start with a little story. Quotation comes from Proverbs 11.25, where it says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It's a great reminder. You know, this is a time of year, and I know there's a lot of people right now who are fearful, discouraged, frustrated, and lonely. Golly, with this pandemic as it continues, a lot of people are suffering from being lonely. Then we have things like the tornadoes that came through a few days ago. Golly, a lot of uncertainty, unexpected changes, not only in the last two years, but just in the last two weeks. A lot of those have contributed to a lot of people feeling kind of ungrounded, vulnerable. We want to, we want to, and I know you're in this group, we want to be sensitive to people around us, to be really intentional about who we meet, what we can do to make their life better. Now, there's a section that I have in what will be in my new book, An Understanding Heart, and they're just short segments. And I want to share one today that's particularly pertinent, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But I titled it For Want of a Smile. Now, two years ago, members of the 40 Days Eagles community submitted inspirational little short vignettes that were then compiled into 365 messages of hope, encouragement, and spiritual enrichment that we titled Time to Fly. As I was going through that, I like to write a quick note of thanks to each contributor. So somebody would, you know, their piece was what I was reading for the particular day, and I'd shoot them a note just of thanks. So on a particular day, I sent a note to a gal, and I just said, I so enjoyed your piece and time to fly this morning. Do one thing well, and it will spread to everything you do. That was a quote from what she shared. I love that advice. Thanks again so much for helping to bring time to fly to life. Hope you're having a great weekend. That was it. So what? One, two, three, four sentences. A couple hours later, I got this response. Dan, thank you so much. Your words mean more to me than I could ever express. I'm crying happy, thankful tears. Your email is being printed and framed for my wall. And I thought, really? She's crying happy, thankful tears going to print and frame that little note that I sent her? And so the immediate question I asked myself was, why haven't I done more to reach out to this single mom who's struggling to provide for herself and her children? I know she got out of a tough situation. She was concerned for her safety. I know she needs freelance work to make ends meet. And the simple email of gratitude seems to be a much needed lifeline of hope and encouragement. Just a reminder to me, why don't I do that more often? My 11-year-old granddaughter, Ellie, recently told her mom, when I see someone who's not happy, I give them a compliment. Now, that was said just after she had seen a lady who was obviously not happy. In fact, the lady appeared quite angry. So Ellie 
and 11 years old, approached her confidently and said, I really like your blouse. The lady's entire countenance changed instantly, and she said, well, thank you very much. Now, the end of the year holidays is a time when a lot of people become depressed over the state of their lives. It's the end of another year, a time to reflect on success or lack thereof. Have I accomplished what I wanted in my business, my relationships, my health, my spiritual vitality? As they reflect, some decide that living itself is just too difficult. The Golden Gate Bridge is the world's leading suicide location. Every nine days on average, someone ends their life there. Every nine days. In 2016, there were 39 suicides from the bridge. In 2017, there were 33. At least 1,700 people have been seen jumping or have been found in the water since the bridge opened in 1937, including Roy Raymond, the founder of Victoria's Secret. Uh, There was also a 37-year-old father who commanded his five-year-old daughter to jump and then followed her to the same tragic end. Now, Dr. Jerome Motto had a patient who jumped in his mid-70s. No, in the mid-70s. I'm sorry, the guy was much younger, but in the mid-70s. He says, I went to the guy's apartment afterward. The guy was in his 30s, lived alone, pretty bare apartment. He'd written a note and left it on the bureau. It said, I'm going to walk to the bridge. If one person smiles at me on the way, I will not jump. Now, he did jump. But wow, what a powerful, simple message that is. What a gift a smile can be. I mean, how many people did he meet that day walking toward the bridge? What if I had been one of them? It doesn't take money to give some of the most precious gifts, time, encouragement, a listening ear. I want to encourage you, be aware of those around you, especially during this time of year. Give the smile. Give the gift of a smile. It costs nothing, and you still have it to give again and again and again. Now, San Francisco is currently building a net 20 feet below the walkway on the Golden Gate Bridge at a projected cost of $211 million, which is more than three times what it cost to build the bridge over 80 years ago. It'll take another three years to complete the net. What if we focus more on smiling at each other and giving others an encouraging word each day rather than spending millions to use cold steel and wire to physically restrain people from jumping? I mean, what if we look for simple ways to brighten someone's day? I mean, here's just a a few ideas. Use the Ellie, my daughter, granddaughter's system. Use the Ellie system. Compliment someone who appears angry. Start a conversation with a stranger. Invite a neighbor couple over for dinner. Ask someone about their day and really listen. Leave an encouraging word on someone's windshield. Smile at everyone you meet for an entire day. I mean, just think about whose life have you touched or could touch with a smile or word of encouragement today. All right, so that's my little vignette for today. Just uh, I'm very, very aware of that here at the end of the year, just to notice, to pay attention to what people around are feeling. So here's some questions we're going to be looking at today. Is it a bad thing to avoid work? My husband and I both realized that it wasn't just job satisfaction we were struggling with. It was our entire lifestyle. 
Dan, when you talk about the books you've read or the books, or do you read every book word for word, or is it just skimming for highlights? And somebody asked, how can I find time for another income stream when I'm already working 60 hours a week and taking care of family members with health issues? Very legitimate question. I got a very clear answer for that. Okay, let's jump into some of these. Sheila asked, my 24-year-old daughter and I were discussing last week's podcast on the anti-work movement and ran across a couple of questions I'd love to get your take on. There seems to be a growing population that are not concerned with work they love, but only a life they love, working only for the money to live the life they desire. For example, they bartend or build artisan furniture a few months out of the year to pay their bills so they can then travel and enjoy a life they love. When the money runs out, they go back to bartending or build some more furniture to sell. They're taking care of themselves, but aren't building wealth necessarily, and they don't necessarily love their work. It's more a means to an end. They are part of the anti-work movement because they want to work as little as possible. But it is, is it a bad thing if a life you love is the ultimate goal. Wow, so much Sheila packed in that question that you and your daughter are having. I love it. Well, let's just let's just unpack a, a couple things out of there. Now, in chapter one of 48 Days to the Work You Love, I ask a question. Is work that necessary evil that consumes the time between our brief periods of enjoyment on the weekends? Is it primarily a method of paying the bills and showing responsibility? Or is it a way to prove to our parents that the college degree was a reasonable investment? Or is it the shortest path to retirement? Or is it more? Now, it seems that a lot of people believe that work is a trade-off for enjoyment. That work is only done to produce a paycheck, and then you get a chance to really do what you want to do, to play, or ultimately to retire. Now, to work is to carry out the duties of a job. To play is to do something enjoyable. That's how we define them. But what if you found something that you truly enjoyed that also supplied your needed income and more? Would work and play then kind of become indistinguishable? Is it unreasonable to expect our work to be an enjoyable activity? Is that really an impossible idea? I mean, what would happen to your plans for quitting work and playing or retirement if you were doing work that was meaningful and profitable and enjoyable now. I mean, our idea of retirement is to be able to quit the stinking job, be able to do something that I enjoy every day. I mean, what a novel idea. Now, finding or creating work that fits you is a very individualized process. Depending on your personality, you may be easily bored with the workspace I have as an example. I mean, I think and dream and imagine and write as I work. But if you're a social, gregarious person, my work environment would make you feel really lonely and isolated. But I mean, that's the beauty of knowing how we can shape our choices to fit what we know about ourselves. You get to choose what blends your talents, personality, and passions. Now, is a life you love one that does not include anything we would normally consider work? I mean, is that really what you're looking for? A life that you love, meaning, okay, I don't have to work. If the only reason you work is to get money to pay the bills or then give you time where you don't have to work, I would venture to say you have not yet found work you love. 
And if you only work enough to make enough money to pay your own bills and then eventually retire when you have enough to take care of yourself, it would appear that you're a pretty selfish person. When you're doing work you love, the money should come much easier and provide more than what you need personally. Then you have the wonderful privilege of giving from a full cup. And I talk about that a lot. I mean, everybody in my mastermind has that little silver goblet that is on top of a saucer to remind us that we serve best from a full cup. We want to have a full cup. I mean, most people want to give. Again, with these recent disasters, a whole lot of people are looking for opportunities to help the people that were affected by the tornadoes this last week. I mean, we've, Joanna and I have certainly done that, are helping some people you know, with a hotel to stay in while they don't have electricity at their house. I mean, we want to be able to do that. Margaret Thatcher said, No one would remember the Good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money, too. So in response to your question here, Sheila, there's really two words that need to be defined. Those are work and stewardship. That's another word I haven't used yet, but I want to throw it in here. But work, you know, what is work? Is it just the means to create income, to pay the bills and something you have to do? If it is, then certainly the life you love is going to want the absence of that. But again, you find that sweet spot where you have that blend of your passion, your talent, and an economic model. Golly, I find people that are doing that aren't looking for excuses to stop and go do nothing for six months. Now, the other part of this is stewardship. Now, that's a word I take very seriously. It just means if you've been giving something, that you take care of it. So if somebody gives you a bicycle, all right, do you leave it out in the yard when it's raining and let the chain get rusty? That's poor stewardship. No, good stewardship means you take care of it. You put it inside overnight. You make sure that it doesn't get rusty. You don't bang it up. You don't throw it around. It's stewardship. And I take that seriously with the talents and gifts that I've been given. To steward them means to use those. It doesn't mean to look for ways to just do nothing. Now, there's a second part to Sheila's question here. I want to read that as well. Really great question. Secondly, as my daughter and I talked about anti-work and doing nothing, we began to discuss what is considered doing nothing. Is a painter who isn't painting in order to sell his work doing nothing? Is a monk who's reading and writing for the betterment of society doing nothing? Does the work you do need to be work in the economic sense in order to be considered doing something, particularly when you think how many of our great works of art were produced through leisure rather than labor. Is that anti-work? Kelly, great questions. Again, it has to do with how we define work and how what we're doing when we uh, when it looks to other people like we're doing nothing. Now, yesterday I got two new magazines. Ink and Success. They're two of my favorite magazines. Uh, I also got a book, the titled Bandersnatch. Now, it's about C.S. Lewis and the Inklings, the group that he met with for 14 years. Now, they shared ideas and stimulated each other to produce great literary works. So, I'm reading that. So, now, here's the deal. Uh, Joanne and I are going to go this week to Chicago for five days, and I'm taking those three items with me, those two magazines and one book. I consider myself to be totally, totally on vacation, as much doing nothing as I ever do in my life. But I'm looking forward to reading. 
Now, there's no direct connection to doing that reading and making money. I'm just doing nothing. Or is there a connection? Now, again, a little more on this. If someone is in college and they're eager to get that diploma because they believe they can then get a great job, the process of completing those classes probably feels like a lot of work. I mean, I certainly spent a lot of time in universities and I saw kids that were doing that. It's just a pain in the neck to have to do the work, to complete the assignments, to get the grade, to hopefully someday get that diploma. That was never my approach. I mean, I did my bachelor's, my master's, my doctoral classes, never with the anticipation of getting a better job because I'm an entrepreneur. I had no expectation of applying for any job. So why was I in school? Because I believe the process was helping me grow as a person. So was the process boring, tedious, seeming like really tough work? No, I enjoyed it because I had a different view on why I was there in the first place. Much different view than most students. So when I'm in Chicago, on vacation, reading Success Magazine, am I doing nothing? Not really. It may look like a meaningless expenditure of time to someone else who's looking in, but I'm enjoying reading the stories of other people's success. And you can be very confident that I'm picking up ideas that I can apply for my own increased success. Now, I personally don't try to find opportunities for doing nothing. I mean, I think everything I do has a purpose. I mean, I can't think of anything that doesn't have a purpose. If I'm out walking in the morning, it's not doing nothing. I'm exercising to keep myself healthy. So I'm able to keep up with my grandkids and also able to continue doing the work I love. And of course, when I'm walking, I'm also listening to podcasts. So I'm getting positive, clean, pure, helpful input to help me in a whole lot of ways. I mean, if I'm, um, if I'm playing cards with Joanne, which we do pretty much every single day, it's not doing nothing. It's investing in a relationship that's very important to me. So the idea of doing nothing kind of uh, rubs me the wrong way. I, I can't imagine trying to consciously do nothing. Now, if you're just looking for an opportunity to do something you enjoy, sure. But then how does that fit in your overall developing as a person or in overall creating a life that you love? It could be part of that. And it's not just about making money. Certainly when I'm walking, I'm not making money. When I'm reading, when I'm playing cards, the things I've mentioned. But those are still viable components of making me the person that I am so that I do produce in effective ways. Well, great questions, Sheila. Thanks for sending those in. Hope that gives you and your daughter some more to talk about and digest. All right, and some more questions here. My husband and I both realized it wasn't just job satisfaction we were struggling with. It was our entire lifestyle. Since we don't have kids, the whole suburban lifestyle with nine-to-five work routine, weekends doing housework and running errands feels meaningless. We're in the process of making a complete lifestyle change but feel a bit lost at times trying to envision exactly what our best life looks like. It's hard to see outside the box when our culture pushes the, quote, American dream of a nine-to-five job, nice house, nice toys, and so on. Yeah, I'm boy, again, great question, great setup, great starting point for determining 
what is your best life? I love the way you frame this. Now, we've all heard the formula for reaching that American dream. Yeah, you go to a good college, get the right degree, find a job with a great company, put in your 35 years, get a gold watch, and retire. But does that really accomplish anything beyond creating an income? Does that process address the larger issues of passion, purpose, calling? Now, certainly it does not for the younger generations coming into the workplace today. I mean, a lot of them, you know, they see what happened to mom and dad who followed that plan for the American dream only to reach the end of their working career with a feeling that nothing had been achieved other than receiving a paycheck. Or worse yet, they saw mom and dad, you know, put in 25 years and then one morning show up at the office and be told, and eh, we don't need you anymore. You've got 30 minutes to clean out your desk. I mean, that, that should not be the end. That, that's certainly not an end goal, but a lot of kids have seen that happen to their mom and dad. You know, is that the, the, the end of a desired work life? No. Now, if we look around, it's easy to see that our, our common perceptions, our common teachings about success are at odds with what we know about building a life we love. From our early days in school, we're taught that the things that get rewarded are quantifiable skills. I mean, learn your multiplication tables, maybe a little bit of computer coding, and then you'll be on your way to the American dream and real success. And yet we're seeing that's not a great model. I mean, people often attain extraordinary levels of income, but they lose compassion and the enjoyment of rest. I mean, relationships deteriorate when there's only a focus on having more things. So what I would suggest for you and your husband is to ask yourself, it actually comes from Dan Sullivan, but it's a question that a lot of us use, especially as coaches. So the question is this, if, if we were meeting three years from today, what has to have happened during that three-year period, both personally and professionally, for you to feel happy about your progress? So start with that. What do you want your life to look like three years from now? I mean, any of you listening, Start with that. What do you want your life to look like three years from now? Is it just a bigger house, a nicer car, more money in the bank, more stocks that you own, more investments? Or are there other things? There ought to be other things that define your best life. It may require working less. It may require making less money. Again, this is not just some kind of a quantifiable game to define what a best life is for everybody where it's always bigger and better and more, or you're not growing. No, not at all. I mean, I have to be careful with that because I like to think about more and bigger. You know, I'm, I just love the challenge. I love the thrill of the hunt, I'm like a dog chasing a car. <laughs> but I, so I have to watch that when I encounter people who are living what they consider their best life. And to me, it looks like they're not really accomplishing anything new. I have to be careful with that. I know that's a very personal kind of thing to define what is your best life. Well, this question comes from Aaron. who says, when you talk about the books you've read, do you read every book word for word, or is it just skimming for highlights? I love to read and find it difficult to read and listen to that many books because I feel like I have to complete every book I pick up. I've hit a lull in reading because the last few books have not grabbed my attention enough to make me want to read them. Just curious as to whether or not you finish every book word for word. Well, Aaron, the short answer is no, I do not finish every book word for word. 
Now, just like I talked about my years in colleges and universities, I wasn't there to get the grades or get the diploma or just somehow check off that I was there. I was there for the learning that I enjoyed. Now, the same was true with books. I'm not reading to brag about how many books I read or to just check off a list. I have no obligation to the author to finish a book if I'm not enjoying it. I mean, books that are 240 pages long, which is a traditional trade book, I mean, the author better give the major portion of what message in the first 40 pages. I mean, good writers understand that. You don't just wait. You can't wait till page 230 to start really giving the meat of your book. No, you tell everything that you really want them to know in the first 40 pages. Then you kind of expand on that if you want the book to be longer than that. Now, I do read quickly, but you probably do too, Aaron. I mean, if you read a page a minute, which is a reasonable speed, that means you can read a 240-page book in, what would that be? Well, it'd be four hours, four hours. Uh, Bandersnatch, the book I mentioned, let me check here. Well, it has it has 170 pages, so it's a little shorter. But that means I can read it entirely in a little less than three hours. So if I do average reading a book a week, that only means I'm spending about three hours a week. And I certainly do that and more. I mean, I read much more than three hours a week. I like to spend at least two hours a day reading. So it, it involves a, thing, a lot of things other than books as well. Great question. You know, love Jared. Incidentally, my, my um, resource for today, let's make the resource today my reading list. Let's do that. So if you go to 48days.com slash reading, you'll get a list of the books that I recommend. Now, if you're in the, golly, if you're in the Eagles community, you realize that next year we're going to be going, 2022, we're going to be going through 12 books. This year, we spent the entire year going through one chapter a month, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I love that process. I don't think there's a lot of books that I would want to spend an entire year in an online study like that. That one deserved that. It's rich, deep content, and I grew dramatically from going through it yet one more time. Next year, we're going to go through 12 books, one book every month. In January, it's going to be How to Win Friends and Influence People. The old Dale Carnegie classic, that'll be our book. So I love the process, but go to to 48days.com slash reading, and you'll see the list of books that I recommend. You can get started on those if you just read 12, 12 that I, we're going to be going through. That would be a great way and it can transform your life. All right. Hey, questions, as you know, if you go to 48days.com slash ask Dan, and you can leave your question there again, 48days.com slash ask Dan. That's a special page for you to submit your questions, shoot those in. If you got a success story, love to hear that as well. Keep those coming in. Love it, love it, love it. All right. Next question here. Let me just do, I'm going to do just one more. Finding time to work on side business with a demanding full-time job and a family of five. Focusing on priorities within the side business that are fulfilling and make money. How to find and pay for virtual help in the side business. Well, these are all challenges. While the side business is fulfilling, it doesn't provide much income. Okay. Challenge is how long do I continue to work at it? What are my end goals with the business? Should I go full-time at some point? You know, here's, here's another question very similar to this. How do I find time for another income stream when working 60 hours a week already and taking care of family members with health issues? 
All right, let me kind of group those together. You have to have margin in your life to add something else. You can't just keep adding on. If you're working 60 hours a week already, you're already borrowing on the success in other areas of your life. So we look at those, you know, your personal development, your spiritual growth, your physical well-being, family. I mean, something's already suffering if you're working 60 hours a week. To add something else on, I wouldn't even recommend doing that. You've got to figure out some way that you can get some more margin before you add something else on. Now, that may mean taking another job that's not as demanding as an interim process, not as a dream job. I mean, uh, Nick Pivletis, you know, he, he's in very active in the Eagles community, an attorney. He quit the job that he had. He was on the fast track to become partner in a legal firm in New York City. But he was working incredible hours, and he saw that, that he was sacrificing in other areas. He wanted to redirect. But as a stepping stone, he quit that job, took another job as legal counsel for a small firm where he had way reduced hours. And then over a two-year period, then he developed the new side business that then he switched into full-time. And now he's, of course, very active in ghostwriting and teaching other people how to do that as well. So you, you have to have some margin in your life. So my recommendation to spend 15 hours a week on growing a side business is based on working no more than 40 hours in your regular job. And then also, as to your question here, if the side business is not providing much income, as you state, why not? Does it have the potential to grow? Or do you need to drop that idea and find a better one? Or are you doing it just because it is a hobby of yours. And there's a lot of approaches to these things. It's not just one cookie cutter answer. You get to decide. But if you really want that business to grow into something where you could move into it full time, and if you want it to replace your income, I mean, my recommendation is, again, that you spend 15 hours a week. And if you have the margin in your life to do that, if you're working 40 hours, you certainly do. But if you're working 60, then it becomes questionable because that, again, is 20 hours more than a normal 40. So there goes your 15 hours plus. But then my recommendation is to spend that 15 hours and within six months be generating 50% of your current income. That's a model that a whole lot of people have followed and attained and then seen that then they could move into doing it full time if they invest the rest of their time in that arena. So that's the model. That's what I recommend. I'm going to stick to that. Hey, we're going to wrap it up with that. My gosh, it's heading into Christmas time here. Depending on when you're listening to this, probably make the next couple podcast episodes a little shorter going through the holidays as well. But hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. Again, remember to smile at people. Be sensitive to people around you who are hurting, feeling discouraged. You be the encourager. You can lift somebody up without spending money. Just be the encourager. Send a note to somebody. Smile when you see them. Pick up the tab for somebody at the restaurant. Uh, do fun things like that that may involve a little money. We all look for ways to do that. I just um, just give bonuses to the our yard guys who are out here as I speak. I record this on Wednesday mornings. They're always here on Wednesday mornings, and I just had the privilege of going out and giving them a Christmas bonus, which made their day. I love looking for opportunities to do that. Well, remember our quotation from Proverbs, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It's, a, it's kind of a ironical thinking, 
that if you give more, you'll have more. But it's just a principle that's been proven throughout history. A generous person will prosper. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in your questions, for being open to growing, for being a powerful force, for making the world a better place. And as you know, for believing believing along with me without a shadow of a doubt that we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.